Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. And when you work with artists that are just set on their own vision and they don't understand that they're actually being hired and it's somebody else's vision, it's a challenge. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to collaborate with artists when creating your products, how to protect yourself when working with freelancers, and how to source products by walking into retail stores. Today, I'm joined by Dan and Dave from Art of Play. Art of Play offers curated collection of custom and designer playing cards for magicians, cardists, games, and collectors. And we started in 2013 and based out of San Diego, California. Welcome, Dan and Dave. Thanks for having us. It's good to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah, excited to have you both on. So pretty interesting, uh, I guess, audience or niche that you guys are going after. What Talk to us about this. How did you choose this, uh, this industry to, to start a business in? Yeah, you, you know, you would say it's, it's niche, but, you know, we're, we're in a huge niche market. Magic and cardistry are two very popular, diverse, global art forms. Um, and one of their main tools is playing cards. So they go through a lot of playing cards. <laughs> um, and that's, that's ultimately how we got into it. We're, we're magicians turned uh, brand owners. But we've always loved playing cards. I think since we were 12 years old, we've carried a deck with us everywhere we go. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, Dave, if you want to chime in, Dave, and give a little more info. Yeah, I couldn't have really said it better. I mean, that's sort of how we got started with Art of Play. It was just our love and passion for playing cards. I think in 2008 was the first year we put out our own deck of cards. And that was long before Art of Play. We actually had another website, which we still have, uh, danandave.com, where we would explore different ideas. We would release playing cards, instructional videos for magicians, apparatus for magicians, and then eventually playing cards sort of took it over. Like we were seeing more and more interest in playing cards and eventually we're like, hey, we should start a playing card only store. And that kind of planted the seed for Art of Play. So you both are professionals already in this space and you decided to start creating your own tools, essentially, right? Your own playing cards. How did that happen? How did you decide that 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 you know that you guys are, of course, the target customer? How did you take that step, that leap towards designing and creating your own cards? It was, I think, two thousand and six or seven, and um, David Blaine, uh, world famous magician had just put out uh, his own deck of playing cards. And as young teenagers, we were like, this is amazing. You know, we have to get this deck. This is, you know, David Blaine's personal deck. And at that time, we we were growing as artists and magicians. Uh, we had our own brand. Um, it was very small at that point. But that's ultimately what gave us the idea that, you know, if David Blaine could have a deck, why can't we have one? Um so from there, we we saw an artist that we really loved. We reached out to him. He was a UK artist from the United Kingdom. His name was Cy Scott. Um, we pitched him the idea, and he was into it. And we 
I think about a year later, we released two decks. Since we're twins, we released two decks and called them Smoke and Mirrors. One was black and one was white. And that's that's really what started it. And that was back in 2007 or 2008. And today, I can't even count how many decks we've done. I'm probably close to 100 unique playing cards over the years. Mm, so you found a designer to work with. Did, did this designer also have experience in the industry or were they a designer from another industry that you essentially taught how to design for for your industry? Yeah, so we, we actually discovered Sai on a blog. I couldn't tell you which blog, but we used to follow a lot of design blogs and his work just really stood out to us. And we went to his website. He had an email address, so we just emailed him. But nowadays, I mean... It's so easy to discover artists that work for freelance. We use Behance.com to discover artists. And a lot of the artists we work with have profiles on Behance. So it's a great resource to go and just type in some keywords um, that you have brewing for an idea and find the right artist for the job and then start a conversation. And that's really how it works. It's just a casual email that says, look, we have this idea for a deck of cards uh, we think you'd be perfect for it. And then, you know, if, if they're into it, they're into it. And it just goes from there. Mm. Or better or better yet, Instagram, is, which is what um, we use now. We find so many unique artists on Instagram. It's just such a great platform for, for anyone to post their work. And it just makes it easy and convenient and fun to find new new artists out there. Mm, so you guys are not just working with one artist anymore. You're working with multiple artists to release all of these different uh, playing cards? A absolutely, yeah. We've worked with dozens of artists from all over the world. I mean, the way it works for us is if, if we see an artist and we're into their style and we're into their art or their work, you know, why not reach out to them? Why not collaborate on something and, and make something physical and tangible? Yeah, I think that that's a great approach to add new angles, new flavors into into your your product because you're essentially selling the same product but very different approaches, right? Yeah, what's what's great about playing cards is it really is a blank canvas. There, I mean, you can browse our catalog of of hundreds of different designs, and no two are the same. I mean, we have. Uh, a deck themed after you know animals where and then we have a deck themed after the sons of liberty um we have <laughs> so many i can't even think of any right now <laughs> yeah now, now how do you because you're working with so many different designers so many different artists how do you i guess keep it cohesive right? i think that that's a concern that some entrepreneurs some brand owners have when they're collaborating with so many different artists so many people that have uh, you know, different opinions or different approaches to to the art. How do you work with them to make sure that everything is you know aligned with your brand? Well, one of the great things about playing cards is it really promotes individuality. Like each deck is almost like a book, like a coffee table book. You know, it doesn't have to follow a format. It doesn't necessarily have to fit within our own branding it can live on its own in its own world with its own aesthetic and we love that idea we love this approach and just allowing the artist to express their own ideas in the cards and themselves and not hold them back to any kind of limitation so that's why our cards i would say are some of the most unique from deck to deck i mean we have you know cards 
spanning a wide range of styles from from vintage to western to modern to classy you know it's it all depends on the artist and the idea we have mm-hmm. now what's the the best way to work with with artists in your experience like what's the what what kind of tips do you have to offer for people that are out there that want to that have a brand that maybe they're the the sole voice and visionary of the brand but now they want to consider collaborating with other artists like what's the, the what, what kind of tips do you have to offer I think it's very clear. I mean, we work with artists from, you know, like I said, all over the world. So it is, it's very much through email or through Skype. Um, there's very little like direct contact with the artist just because it's, it's not possible. It's very impractical. But I think having a clear vision um, and a clear idea, whether it's your idea or the artist's and sticking to it, because, you know, as these projects go on for <laughs> months, sometimes over a year, like the direction can totally change and it just never ends. It's like, oh, we could go this way or we can go that way. We can change that. We can change this. So I think having a clear concept from the start and, and just going with it is is what we've learned over the years because there's just so many options. There's so many ways you could, you could swing this, you know? <laughs> the other thing too is like when you're looking for artists, like Dan said, it's important to have a vision because it's every artist has their own style they specialize in. And if you're looking through an artist's portfolio and you want something different than what they've represented themselves as and what they've shown in their portfolio, it's going to be a challenge and you're likely won't be able to get that. So it's important that you hire an artist whose style is what you're going for. I mean, you get what you get. So just try to find the artist who has the style in line with your own vision. And then I think it will be a success. Yeah. And I think that's why um, we've worked with just so many different artists over the years, just because, you know, every idea, every concept, every theme kind of requires a different, different style. And, you know, if there's an artist out there that is the best there is at that particular style, then use them. Yeah, I think that's a great point that, you know, when people are going out there looking for freelancers, for contractors, for design work, they sometimes gauge it on based on things like the the, the budget or or maybe uh, based on how well they work with the, the, the art, the, the artist or the freelancer. Um, but they don't think about, is this artist already creating in the style that I want? You know, it's much harder to kind of force that aspect rather than work around the budget or work around uh, how, how well you communicate with them. So now when you do find artists that you like their style, how much input do you typically to, do you typically give yourselves? Like, or do you just kind of let them run with it, with the initial designs? You know, we have an arrangement with the artists to to, you know, make revisions, to give feedback. We prefer to have a role of art director. So, you know, it is it is our vision, it is our product. And I think we do understand, you know, the market and what we're trying to achieve. So it's important we have that relationship with the artists. And it's also extremely important that they know that that's the relationship you want up front. We've, had, we've worked with artists <laughs> many, many, many times where it wasn't clear that that's the position and that's the role we wanted to play in the process. And when you work with artists that are just set on their own vision and they don't understand that they're actually being hired and it's somebody else's vision, it's a challenge. I mean, it's not easy to work 
with every artist. So it's important to be clear upfront mm. where you stand and what you want and how the relationship is going to work. Um, but once, once that's set in stone, like once you have an agreement like that, it's so much fun because then you can really bounce ideas off one another and really just jazz with different approaches. It, it actually frees up a lot of the creativity knowing I don't want to say knowing who's in charge, but in a way, knowing who's in charge and who makes mm-hmm. the final call allows for some creativity. You know, it they're no longer afraid to show you something because who knows, it could work out for the better. Yeah, that's a great point. But how, how do you know that th- that particular artist will be amenable or flexible in that way where they will, uh, you know, take direction from, from you? You know, we always wow. ask for it up front and then it's just, in our experience with working with certain artists, you know, we, you know, we might not work with them again. That's just how it is. Um, and then some are absolutely great and we've used them many times. So, yeah, there's, there's really no way of knowing upfront. You just got to have great communication, um, interview the guy, you got to like him, you got to like their work. But to be honest, there's, I would say there's a dozen or so projects of ours that, you know, didn't make it to the finish line, so to speak, just because of, you know, the relationship with the artist wasn't what we wanted. Mm. Now, how do you back out of those situations when you do find that you're running into a brick wall and they're difficult to work with, which I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs will run into, whether they be artists or any other kind of freelancer, you're working with someone that you're just having a very difficult, a lot of friction uh, kind of work relationship with them. How do you back out of that in uh, the best way possible? Well, you know, we always try to be as tactful as we can and, you know, sympathetic. However, it is important, I would say, to have that conversation up front. And in a lot of the contracts we have with artists, there's a kill fee. So, for example, you know, say after the the first or maybe the second round, um, usually our, our cards are completed in stages. You know, we don't just say, hey, tackle everything and then show us the designs. We like to see the work in progress. So, you know, say the second round comes around and, you know, we're just not happy with the direction it's going. Our direction isn't, we don't feel is being communicated or, you know, it's just not coming off in the way we imagined. Then that's the good point to back out and say, hey, you know, we're going to go in a different direction with this. And thank you. We've done that a couple of times. Um Sometimes we'll just give them free reign and say, hey, you know, maybe you're right. Go for it. And it actually turns out sometimes. So it really depends on the project, the scope of the project. If it's a big budget, obviously, we have to be more careful. But if it's a smaller project, then it's really not at a loss if, you know, they just complete it and we don't like it and we don't end up using it. And we have a lot of artwork that's never been shown. So. Now, when you are going through this process of finding an artist, finding different styles that, that are catching your eye, how do you decide that you know this is a, a new a style that we want to to turn into a card? You know, we've been we've been looking through like graphic design books and design blogs for years, and I, I like to think we have a trained eye and a good sense of design. I don't know if that's true. I think we just have an opinion. Um, but if we both really like something. I think it says a lot, you know, sometimes I like something and Dan's like, meh, I don't, I don't know what you see in that. And, you know, I think what's really beneficial in our, our relationship, our partnership, and I'm talking about Dan and I is 
we have this unique privilege where, you know, we can both work together on something. And then when we share a similar idea, it's usually a sign that we're going in the right direction. It's usually a sign that we're both going to be energized and enthusiastic and excited about the project. And that helps drive the overall vision. And I think, I think the fact that, you know, we use playing cards on a daily basis as magicians, as sleight of hand artists, like we've seen more designs and shuffled more cards than anyone on the planet. I could guarantee you that. Um, and I think that's important to, to really understand and, and know and love, you know, what it is you're creating. In this case, it's playing cards for us. Like, so with that said, you know, it's it's very different to see a piece of art or a design on a wall and it versus shrunk down to a tiny three and a half by two and a half piece of paper, you know. So with that, we we really know what works on a small scale, <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you look for the validation elsewhere outside of, obviously, you two, like you're saying, you two are the perfect uh, kind of filters for what's good and what's not because you are the target customer and you've seen so many different designs, you know the business behind it. Do you also look elsewhere outside of yourselves to, to validate whether a particular design is going to sell well or not? Oh, absolutely. Like all the time we are straight up stumped. Like there's like Kickstarter is very popular in the playing card community. There's new decks um, released on Kickstarter all the time. Some of them, you know, we scratch our heads and be like, how is this funded? How is this so successful? (laughs) You know, I I mean, yeah, it's just personal taste, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, We like to think we have good taste, but sometimes people don't like it. (laughs) There's a team, like we have a team of seven and out of those, uh, our older brother is one of them. We're always asking him for his opinion. Um, we have a couple of friends who I think have a really good sense of design. So we'll ask them. Uh, we ask uh, one of our team members, Adam, what he thinks. So we have like our go-to people that we, you know, use to sort of validate our direction and our vision. But at the core of it, if it's not something we're really excited about, like it doesn't matter what anyone else says. It's like we're going to do it or we're not going to do it. <laughs> it's really it has to be up to us. And so even if you do see a particular design or style that is very popular and you know that it's going to sell, but you either but the both of you just aren't excited by it, aren't excited, you aren't into that particular style, you won't release it. No. And I think that's an important like distinction when you fall, like that's a trap in my opinion. Like when you start doing that, you're going to lose your passion. You're going to, you know, you might be able to write it out for a long time and you might have some great success, but looking back, there wouldn't, there won't be any purpose to it. Like there's a lot of purpose in what we do and a lot of passion drives what we do. So we never want to take on a project for the sole sake of appealing to the masses. Like that's, that's not at all what we're into. And that's why I think our cards don't follow any particular template. You know, they're not, they don't look the same from one to the other. I mean, you probably wouldn't know it's an art of play deck looking Mm -hmm. at it on the shelf in a store because it's so different from the other one, but it allows us to pursue our own vision and to be excited about it. So I think it works in that benefit. 
Right, that makes sense. Now, when you do have a new, talk just through the, the timeline. Let's say that you you find artists. How long does it typically take for them to to create a a, a design? I guess the final version that's ready to go to 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 print. It really it really depends on the artist and the scope of the project. Um, we've had projects go on for two years, and that's fine. It's been fun working on those projects. They end up to be truly great um, projects that we really love. Uh, we've we've had artists deliver complete designs in a couple of months. Um, so it really depends on the scope and and what we're looking for. But after we receive the the artwork and it's ready to go. Basically it's about an eight week turnaround until we see a physical play deck of playing cards. And our process is kind of involved. You would probably never imagine this, but there's a lot of steps, at least for us to do it with the quality we uphold to, um, to get a finished deck of cards. We start by printing just the playing cards through the United States Playing Card Company. Um, they're based in Kentucky. In our opinion, they're the best there is at printing playing cards. They've been doing it for over 130 years. Um, just the quality is better than anything we've seen. For the boxes we use, for the packaging, I should say, we use a local letterpress printer in San Diego, Clove Street Press who does phenomenal work. This allows us the creative freedom to, to really do whatever we want, like all the printing tricks, embossing, foil stamping, stamping, letterpress, debossing, like custom papers, die cutting. Like It's crazy what we're able to do. And I think that's what really sets us apart from the rest of the playing card community. From there, from there, and then everything. So we get the cards from the U.S. playing card company, boxes from local letterpress, then everything has to be hand assembled or packaged and seller wrapped um, before it's delivered to us. <laughs> so it is a lot of steps for just a single deck of playing cards. Did you have experience in this industry before? How did you know how to do, I guess, piece together this entire supply chain? It's just something that we learned over the years. You know, we've been doing this since 2008. And I think it took us until 2010. 13 to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of mistakes can you share that, that you've made along the way during this discovery process? I don't know if I would call them mistakes, um, lessons maybe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> just because if it's not a mistake, if you don't know, and we just didn't know, mm -hmm. you know, we sort of, you know, we're always wanting to improve and, you know, our, our next project is always our best project. And with that comes, you know, research and finding better ways to do what we've done in the past. And that's ultimately what led us to using this local letterpress instead of having, you know, a factory printer boxes. That's what had us hand assemble all the decks, which is just a, a better way to do it. In our opinion, the quality turns out better. So it has just been a learning process over the years. One of the, one of the mistakes I remember early on um, was opting we were we were on a tight deadline we wanted to release a deck i think for the holidays and we had normally opted to receive a printed proof however we were on such a tight deadline that we said no we don't need the printed proof we we trust <laughs> look okay and that was a huge lesson we will never again print a deck of cards without receiving a physical printed proof because the colors are never the same 
as what you see on your computer mm-hmm. or even you see like in a Pantone color book, like the paper has a lot to do with the end result. So for this particular deck, the colors came out just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that was, that was a sad, a sad day. <laughs> we got like 2,500 decks and I mean, granted, nobody knew they weren't exactly what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone questioned the color was off. But for us, it was not at all what we wanted. And it was always like a dissatisfaction. And it was a huge lesson to, you know, don't rush things like this. Your products are the most important thing you have. I mean, it's everything. It's why you have customers. So, you know, spend the time on them and make sure they're, they are what you're intending them to be. Mm. Now you have a, a pretty large catalog now of different playing cards. How often are you releasing new new products these days? Playing cards, we we on average, I would say, we release a new deck every month. Um, last year was a bit more ambitious. I think we had about sixteen new decks that we produced that year. Um, we we toned it back a little bit this year, but um, we try to come out with something new every month. And then just last year, we started integrating games and puzzles and unique curiosities into our catalog, which has been a whole different learning curve for us. Um, And it's so fun sourcing all these unique items. Um, Like just last month, we traveled through Japan for two weeks just with the sole purpose of sourcing cool stuff to bring back to to our shop. It was a lot of fun. Now, now, when you are releasing once a month, that's a pretty, even though these are decks, even though you have the experience of releasing them, it's still a pretty high frequency and a, lot, a ton of work to squeeze into a new release every month. What's your process behind this? Like, how do you, what is the launch process for a new uh, new deck? Um, it, it depends. Certain decks get more, more hyped up <laughs> as than others. As, yeah. As soon as we get the cards, we'll send them to our photographer our photographer lives on the other side of the, the country, on the East Coast. So he's taking the photos. As he's taking the photos, we're working on the copy. We're adding the product to the website. We're starting to tease the fo- tease the cards on Instagram. And then, you know, we'll usually announce a release date and, you know, hype it up until that day. And then when that comes, everything's hopefully ready to go. Uh, so many times, though, we have released a deck of cards when we're still expecting them to arrive, (laughs) which is a little scary, but you know, those are days like black Friday or, you know, where you have to release the product. There's like no question, like whether you have the product or not, it's going to be there in a couple of days. You just have to do what you have to do. Mm, What's the, what's the process to decide or to gauge how many units you should, you should order? That's, Honestly, it's it's a hunch. <laughs> Dave and I decide like right before the order. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> do you do you um do, does it do you have photos and everything, or are you hyping it up prior to placing that first order? Like, do you have an idea of how people are responding to it? Some some decks we release as limited releases. Like we're going to print a certain amount. We're going to release it, and then once it sells out, that's it. We're not going to reprint them. Where mm-hmm. other decks will live on. So with that, once we decide that, that determines the quantity we print and whether or not we're going to just continue to reprint it, you know. Got it. Now, do you ever remove products from, from your catalog? 
We don't. I mean, they're they sell out. I don't. If it, we allow them to sell out, and then we'll opt not to reprint them. Mm-hmm. But I think everything that we've produced is on the website. I don't know that we've actually removed anything. Yeah, you can still see it. It's out of stock, but it's still there as like a you know a catalog. Got it. And do you do you make what kind of decision do you make, or how do you make that decision on whether to to restock or not? Is it just based on the the success of that that particular product? Um, I guess it it depends. I mean, how well it sold initially versus how well it sold long term. How well it was received um, with the community. If there's lots of photos of it from other people on Instagram, uh, is a huge factor. Um, if lots of people love the deck and they're posting photos of it, then yeah, we absolutely want to continue selling that deck because it's like free advertising. <laughs> right. That makes sense. We did have something interesting happen though. Years ago, we printed a deck of plaid playing cards. They had a plaid back design. They were very simple and vintagey. <laughs> and when we put them out, they they didn't sell. Like no nobody wanted them. <laughs> And Dan and I thought they were the coolest thing. And that was like in 2012 when vintage wasn't overplayed. Um, so we thought they were perfect and nobody wanted them. And it wasn't until like 2016 or 2015 that people started catching on and we got a lot of exposure on different blogs. And then they all of a sudden started selling like crazy and we had to reprint them. It was just interesting to to see sometimes when something works or if it's just a delayed response or we, we really have no idea. Speaking of, speaking of blogs though, I mean, since we have such a unique item, that's very, you know, designery for lack of a better word, there's so many cool design blogs out there like uncrate or cool material, hunting or not caught. You know, you can name a hundred of these blogs that are well visited and trafficked, trafficked, is that a word? I'm not saying that right. Anyway, um, because of that, a lot of them post and repost our playing cards because they are so unique and cool, you know. So that's been a huge help in, you know, at least the initial sales of the deck. And that's ultimately what I think sparked everyone's interest in plaids. It was Uncrate, which is arguably one of the biggest uh, men's blogs on the internet, blogged the vintage plaids and sales just soar through the roof and they've continued to sell ever since. It's crazy. Now, the intro, I introduced your your company and all the different uh, types of customers that that are that are coming to your 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 store buying from you, but they're 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 different, right? There's demographics. They they all want these playing cards, but they there's at some points there's not a whole lot of overlap between the the different audience, different types of customers that come your way. How do you reach all of these different types of people that are you know all into playing cards but might not be using them for the same purpose? Um, honestly, we we treat them all the same. Um, as sad of an answer as that is, you know, we have cardists and magicians and collectors that continue to buy from us on a regular basis, especially magicians and, and artists. You know, they need, they're the guys that buy like a dozen of the same deck at a time because they use them. And since they're paper, they do get old and they need to replace them. Collectors will buy a few of each deck um, and that's it. They'll wait until the next one comes out. And then we have just, you know, 
the, the layman out there, the, the novice who, who just sees a deck and, and wants one to play with on, on game night. And they're only buying one deck. Um, they might come, come back later and buy another deck, but it's typically only one at a time. Cause let's be honest, if, if you're not a magician or cardist, you really only need one deck. Maybe not. You need them all. Actually, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm neither of all of these. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not your target customer, but just looking at the products makes me want some of these cards just because of the the design factor. It looks like a really unique product, and I think it's something that that anyone that appreciates uh, any art could certainly get into it, even if you're not into playing cards themselves. That's been a challenge for us. I mean, this is a great example because we we are well aware of your demographic like what you just described is a customer that we would love to market to like how, how do we reach you you know so that's one of the things we're struggling with like we have a grasp on the magicians and the cardists and the collectors but there are millions of other people out there who might think our products are interesting so that's been a, a challenge and will probably always be a challenge yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the the style and the design itself is what's attractive to me. Have you, I, I, you know, you mentioned that you've branched out to puzzles and games. Have you thought about just essentially blowing these up into prints, or have, is that an avenue that you're considering going down? Well, we've thought about it. We even have some prints in our warehouse hanging. Um, it's just another really niche niche market um, that we're really not. It's it's a totally different industry and. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's it's one that we want to get into. Right now, we're more focused on games and puzzles. Right. Now, what, what made the decision, or how did you make the decision to expand a catalog into puzzles and games? I think it comes from our, our magic and, and sleight of hand background. We've always been fascinated with, with mystery and, and figuring out ways to achieve the impossible. And a puzzle is the perfect example of that. Um, we've always loved puzzles, and there's just so many unique puzzles out there that, you know, aren't really popular. When you say puzzle, you probably think of just a jigsaw puzzle with mm-hmm. a cheesy fo- photo on it, right? <laughs> that is the total opposite of what I mean by puzzle and what we sell in our shop. We sell really cool puzzle boxes that are handcrafted in Japan and just look amazing on the shelf. And then you pick it up, and it actually does something, and it's fun to play with. And when you figure it out, you're just filled with delight and joy. Um, it's a lot of fun. Now, you mentioned that you source a lot of these products, uh, which is you know different than your experience, which has been to essentially manufacture your, your products yourselves. What kind of difficulties, what kind of challenges have you encountered now that you're into this new territory? Oh, a, a big challenge is having a great seller and then going to place a reorder and hearing from the manufacturer that it's out of stock or that it's no longer being manufactured or that there's a four month waiting period. (laughs) Um, That happens to us quite a bit, especially because we try and source very unique and exclusive items. That's really unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. What's, what's your process for that? So you mentioned that you went to Japan recently and just looked for cool products. Is that literally walking into stores and trying to find products? We literally walked into every store we thought that looked cool didn't matter like what they were really selling. For example, we walked into this home design store. In the window, they were showing like tableware and linens and, you know, little home knickknacks. 
we walk inside and they had a whole corner of Japanese puzzle boxes, probably 40 different puzzle ba- boxes. And the shopkeeper was a huge fan of puzzle boxes and also spoke great English. So it was like we immediately became friends. We told him all about our business. He loved the magic. We showed him some card tricks. Um, we exchanged contact information. We bought a bunch of puzzles from him, of course. But now he is like our guy, our go-to guy for puzzle boxes in Japan. Before we were going through the manufacturer and the language barrier was causing some delays and we weren't always getting a response uh, right away. But now we have this relationship with this this shopkeeper that we have something in common with and we met him in person. He knows who we are. And it's just been great. We have a huge order on the way for the holidays and we're just stoked. So I think it was hugely uh, beneficial for us to take that trip and make these personal connections. Now, when you walk into a store and you see a product that you know you have to get into your own store, how do you, obviously, a lot of times they're, the, the store owner is not the manufacturer. They're probably sourcing from somewhere else. How do you approach them to, to work out an arrangement where you get to, I guess, their source? Honestly, it, I mean, for J- Japan, it was, it was hard. But in the States, if we see something we like, we do it all the time in the States. There's so many unique shops in every, in every major city. And every once in a while, we come across something really unique. We'll just buy it and, you know, <laughs> do our best job to find it on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could always do your own research. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes there's it just there's no, there's no box, there's no website listed, there's no manufacturer listed. Um, so it, it it does become a challenge, but you know there's ways. <laughs> Got it. Now you mentioned earlier that that blogs and websites like Uncrate have been a big boon for your to bring the attention to your business. Is that the biggest driver of traffic to your your store? These blogs? I I think so. Like we try to collaborate with a lot of different sites. Um, we have a really cool video coming out later this month with greatbigstory.com. So that will be a nice push for our to play. We just collaborated with a very popular YouTuber with almost a half million followers who, who came, we flew out to San Diego to do a tour of our showroom in San Diego. And that was a huge push. I think from that, we got about 6,000 new Instagram followers, which is insane. So I think for us, our, our key marketing strategy is just influencers, whether it's on Instagram or YouTube or all these blogs out there. We try to make friends with as many people as possible and sort of, you know, get them to help us get the word out. A lot of the designers we work with, too, also have large followings. So that, I mean, that's not a deciding factor, whether we work with a designer or not, but it is a huge push. Um, you know, we've, we've done a deck, we've done two different decks with DKNG, and they're all over the internet. Their their work is blogged everywhere consistently. They're just like at the top of their game. So that was a huge push in uh, our recognition within the the graphic illustration poster community. And also brands like, you know, we've we've collaborated with some really cool brands. A couple of years ago, we worked with Bruce Lee. Um, and we worked closely with his daughter, Shannon, to, to produce the official Bruce Lee deck of playing cards. And it turned out really cool. It was, of course, blogged on all the blogs. 
Um, and that was a great push and, and exposure. Mm. Now, how do you collaborate with with uh, you know celebrities like this? How do you get in touch with them? How do you get them to agree? It's very it's very simple. You just send out some emails. <laughs> you just have to ask. I mean, we said yeah, we've been blown away by you know it, it's it's the greatest feeling when like someone just says yes from a simple email. It's like that's all it takes. It really puts things into perspective. It always begins with the question, and more more often than not, you know, we we would consider ourselves very lucky. Yeah, and and honestly, we've gotten a lot of no's, but persistence is key. We've turned those no's maybe two years later into into yeses, and finally done a project with them, and that's happened a couple of times. You know, we're just if if we're you know if we love a brand or an artist, you know, we really want to work with them and why not? We're going to make it happen. Maybe not this year, but eventually. That was exactly the case with DKNG. Um, we had reached out to them. They were interested in doing a deck of cards. We would follow up every couple months. They were super busy. They always had tons of work in the pipeline. And it wasn't until like two years after our initial email that we actually released a deck of cards. <laughs> so you have to be persistent. Like, you know, e- even a yes is just, a, or even a no is just uh, not right now, in my opinion. So I, I will follow up with people that say no. Yeah. When you're working with uh, other celebrities or big design studios that will most likely, you know, essentially slow things down, right? Because they have other projects or they have other priorities. How do you kind of keep things moving along and not prevent it from stalling out, essentially? I think once once the project kicks off and officially starts, there there is a deadline. It's very important to have a deadline because projects could go on forever. <laughs> um, and we try to stick to that deadline. You know, it's, it's rarely met, but it's pretty close. It's also, I mean, one way you can influence this is just your payment structure. Like, you know, you never want to pay upfront for everything. <laughs> you know, you want, you want there to be a, like that's a, another, another monetary incentive for them to finish a project as soon as a contract's been signed. So for our larger projects, you know, we can, even break this up into stages like you know finish round one we pay you this round two we pay you this round three we pay you this so there's always a payment at the end when deliverables are sent and that way you know it's in their interest as well to finish the project financially at least Mm. Now, influencers. Influencers are definitely a, 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 a definitely opportunity, but also a challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs finding the right influencers, working with them in, in a way that actually makes sense to drive the traffic and eventually sales to your your store. What's been your approach? How do you identify which influencers to work with? Start uh, starting there. Yeah, that's. I can imagine that being really tough. Like, if you're, especially if you're in a niche market, like, how do you branch out? You know, like, how does it, how does your niche fit in line with anyone else? And it really doesn't, but you got to figure out ways to make it fit. Thankfully for us, since we come from the magic background um, and puzzles and games being, you know, loosely related, I guess, at least interesting, um, we work with a lot of popular magicians that have huge followings and cardists. So that's, that's a huge help. And just with Instagram, like, 
it's very easy. I don't want to say easy, but it's easier than it was before Instagram for anyone to have a huge audience and to have an influence within any community. Um, you know, we have friends that have Instagram accounts with millions of followers just because they're persistent on what they post and they have great content. And now they're able to, you know, be influencers and, and get work because of that. Mm. Now we'll talk a little bit about actually running the business, running the store. What's the, the day to day? Like, what are your key focuses when you come into, to work for the day? It depends. I mean, so I'm in San Diego and Dave is in Los Angeles. Uh, we both live on our computers, so we can technically work work wherever. We do have a warehouse and, and a team of guys that, that run the logistics and the shipping. Our, our focus is more on product development, um, management, um, what else? <laughs> Marketing, strategies, um, dealing with manufacturers, dealing with artists, um, all that, all that stuff, all the fun stuff. <laughs> mm, definitely. So when you are working together, running the, the, the store, uh, what kind of tools, what kind of applications do you guys rely on to, to bring the whole thing together and keep everything organized? I guess I should say, since this is a Shopify podcast that, you know, prior to Shopify, we, we had gone through some other uh, e-commerce platforms, which I, I don't need to mention. They're terrible. Shopify really is the best. It's a lifesaver. And I'm not just saying that we have, we have three shops all on Shopify and it just makes everything so simple. <laughs> um, in addition to that, our, our guys in the warehouse use ShipStation, which is an amazing platform that just makes shipping easy. Click, it's click of a button shipping. <laughs> Um, in terms of other features, I don't know. We like, what kind of, what kind of info do you want to this question? I actually want to, I guess what ShipStation you, know, you mentioned that, are there any other apps that you use from the Shopify app store or even off Shopify that, that you recommend? I mean, outside of Shopify, we, we live in the photo, um, like the Adobe creative suite, you know, we're using Photoshop and illustrator every day, whether it's designing our own designs <laughs> or uh, like tweaking designs or getting things print ready from artists. Um, we use Gmail and G Suite, like Google Pages and Google Sheets are a lifesaver. That's pretty much it for me. I mean, just Adobe and Google are my go-to mm -hmm. applications. Yeah, for for newsletters, we use Clavio, which is I amazing know. as it feeds great. Right, in, right into Shopify, Shopify, and everything is automated from, you know, the, the no, customer. Use, what yeah. was that? I was going to say, I use both. You know, I use MailChimp for another website of ours, and I use uh, Clavio for, I guess, all three of our Shopify websites. And they, they're both really good. They have their pros and cons. Um, I would say, though, if if anyone is running an e-commerce site, the features in Clavio are superior to MailChimp, in my opinion. It just seems to, to be more seamless, especially with Shopify. Yeah, this is definitely a common question I see, or Clavio versus MailChimp or some other email provider. What is What kind of features or, or tools within Clavio do you do you find like uh, particularly useful for e-commerce stores? We, we use the abandoned cart feature. Um, that 
works wonders. It absolutely works, and it's really easy to set up. Yeah, I would say any of Clavio calls them flows or automated emails that come from Shopify, whether it's the the order invoice, the tracking number, the send, uh, submit a review after you purchase an order, the, the customer win back after they abandon the shopping cart. There's so many automated emails within Shopify that connect to Clavio that you can customize and, and really take advantage of upselling future product and, and your website and your brand. And that's pretty much all set up once and automated for you guys. Yeah. You set it and forget it. It's really (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely one of the the, the best ways to to build systems for for your business, creating this kind of sales engine that just runs itself. Now one other thing I I noticed about that that I really like is the design of your of your website, artofplay.com. Talk to us about this. Did you hire a designer for this? How what went into building this site? This is actually a theme on your on your theme shop. Um, I, I can't remember what the theme is called, but it, it really stood out to us because it's super clean. It's it's on white. Um, there's lots of room around each thumbnail, which just makes it like to me kind of like a museum. And we really want our cards to be like individual pieces of art. So this that's why this theme in particular stood out to us. And it just has a nice flow to it. It looks great on mobile. Um, it looks great on any platform, actually. Mm-hmm. And do you have you made any tweaks to it, or do you have you experimented with finding ways to improve? Yeah, we actually use uh, Hey Car. Is that what it's called? Hey Carson, Dan. Yeah, Hey Carson has done um, a lot of tweaks actually to sort of customize it to our needs. I, I couldn't tell you at this point what all those are because it's it's just been a process of improving over. I think we've had this theme for about a year now, but uh, we've sort of made it our own with mm. with with a service called Hey Carson, which is you know on demand development within like seventy two hours, and they're really good. Yeah, definitely heard good heard good things about them. Do you do you remember any particular like uh, experiments or changes that you made to the site that had a, a significant boost to either you know sales or conversions? Hmm, it's a good question. <laughs> most most of our tweaks to the website are more for aesthetic preference. Mm-hmm. It's just like a lot of the tweaks we've made were because we didn't like the way something looked. So it wasn't necessarily, hey, how could we sell this better? Although maybe that would be smart. Well, I think I think I think you you're onto something where if your audience cares about design and that's why they're coming here to buy your products, that should be the main focus, not on how can we put a pop up up that will generate us more emails or anything like that. I think you're on to a good point because a lot of times everyone thinks, okay, let me try this experiment that everyone says I should do, that everyone says is going to increase my conversions, and they go down a direction that doesn't necessarily make sense for for, for their you know target customers. And I think for you guys, because design is so important, you should approach it with uh, how do we improve the, the aesthetics of the, the store. And I think that's, that's definitely the right approach. Yeah, yeah. for us. The, the user experience is key. Like so often we go to websites and you just feel bombarded by sales tactics, whether it's a mm-hmm. pop-up or an upsell or a little window at the bottom. 
Or, you know, like even if you try to click the back button, you get another pop-up, which I think we actually use. <laughs> but there are so many. And I think the the point is to choose them carefully and don't use them all. Because if you use them all, I mean, at least in our opinion, we're going to annoy our customers. Mm-hmm. We would much rather have our customers have an enjoyable, pleasant experience. And maybe they don't purchase with us the first time. But, you know, if they're going to come back, then to us... And they're customers for life. At least we think so. That's our intention. So we tr- we really try to give them the best possible experience. One one of I'll say one of the obstacles we're currently trying to overcome is just like, for example, if you go to our amusements collection on the site, it's it's filled with just really cool things like hand spun spinning tops. Um, a chess set, um, a, a brass belt glary, um, these tippy top things, uh, wooden dice. They look great online, but like we have this showroom here at our warehouse and it's not until you come and actually see it and feel it in person that you can truly appreciate it. And I think once that happens, you, you want it even more. And so trying to transcend that to the, to like a 2d piece of, you know, on the web basically is is really difficult for us we think if if we can figure out a way (laughs) to get that across you know sales will be improved significantly but until then um they're just photos we promise we promise there's so much cooler in real life (laughs) yeah i think think that's the the ultimate challenge of of uh, being online is that you lose out on the ability to pick up a product and feel it in your hands. I think that's where a lot of the value, especially when it comes to these kind of products, that's where a lot of the value is, feeling the weight of it, feeling how the texture of it and all that. So I think that's a a good point. You know, it's definitely a challenge that I think a lot of entrepreneurs face. Yeah, one one of the things I guess we've done to sort of improve that is our lifestyle photos. We -hmm. we really take great effort into showing the product in in unique, um, nice lifestyle settings, you know, whether it's uh, on a coffee table surrounded by other cool objects or on a bookshelf or in someone's hands playing with it. Um, so that's, that's helped significantly. Awesome. Cool. So again, thanks so much for your time, Dan and Dave. So artofplay.com, A-R-T-O-F-P-L-A-Y.com. So by the time this episode gets released, actually will probably be in the holiday shopping season. So I think your products are priced and are look just perfect for, for gifts. How do you prepare for, for the holiday shopping season? What do you guys have planned? <laughs> Lots of cool stuff. We're We've just recently started manufacturing our own games and puzzles. So we'll be releasing a couple of those just in time for the holiday season. We have some really cool new decks coming out. We're always coming out with decks, but we always save the best for the end of the year for the holiday season. And we typically drop everything on Black Friday. Like we have every year we have an epic release of like 20 new products i'm not even joking it's it's crazy it's insane we have a sale so art of play is definitely the place to go for all your all your holiday gifts really (laughs) (laughs) one of the cool things that i i'm really excited about this will be the third year we do it we call it the 25 days of christmas and if you get on our mailing list we have this special promotion where every day I know it sounds crazy, but every day we offer something new, whether it's a brand new release or a rare one of a kind 
item or a crazy discount or a freebie. So every day for 25 days of December, there's something new and only people on our newsletter have access to this special offer. So. Awesome. Definitely going to get on that newsletter then. <laughs> All right. Thank you again so much for your time, Dan and Dave. Thanks for yeah. having us. Felix. Yeah, this was, was great. Thank you. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. Honestly, on a daily basis, I like to have one sample come in to see if I like it personally before I even put it on the shelves. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.